All right. My name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And uh, we're going to continue, as Danny just read, in, in the Gospel of Mark. We're in Mark 13. Uh, as usual, let's pray together. You for me, please, me for you. And we'll pray for one another, with one another, and then dive in. So, Father, we thank you for your word. I've been reminded this week, and, and especially this morning, of uh, what Martin Luther said a long time ago, that... Uh, Scripture is the cradle in which Christ is laid. And so we thank you that, that, that Jesus is speaking to us in this story. That Spirit, you're here with us today and, and helping us understand. And so we pray for open hearts. And that, that all the ways that you're speaking and leading, that, that we would listen to you. And I, I pray that I would in a real way just point my own heart and the hearts of each one of my friends to you and help us see the beauty and the wonder and the truth of the words of Christ this morning. We pray this, Jesus, in your name, together we said, amen, amen. Um, I want to just thank the worship team in part from Frontline South today for bringing, being here and leading us. Uh, if you're like under 30, that was not a new song all in all. If you like have your Shazam out and you're like, this is amazing, who wrote this? It's been around for a minute. That took me back. I love it. Um, I want to start with a question this morning, and the question is this. What do you believe about the Bible? What do you believe about the Bible? I just want to, to recognize and really honor the fact that there are a lot of different people here this morning, some people that uh, have been in church and hearing a song like All in All for 30 years, and, and some of you have done the brave thing of like coming to maybe church for the first time or back to church for the first time in a long time. And that's a really important question, right? What do you believe about the Bible? Everybody has some kind of answer to that. There's an answer in culture that's an answer that's kind of rooted in condemning the Bible, I read this week a quote from Sam Harris, who wrote The End of Faith, famous atheist. And he says, it's time we admit from kings and presidents on down that there is no evidence that any of our books was authored by the creator of the universe. He goes on to say, you know, our, our wisdom and truth and direction and hope as a society is rooted in politics and science. I came across a quote this week from one of my heroes, Helen Keller, woman born without sight or hearing. And listen to what she says about the Word of God. She says, unless we form the habit of going to the Bible in bright moments as well as in trouble, we can't fully respond to its consolations because we lack equilibrium between light and dark. I think what she's saying there is like, hey, we have a tendency sometimes to just pick up our Bible when we're struggling, and yet this woman who could not see or could not hear through the grace of God and her own perseverance, right, learned to go to God's Word in bright days and dark days. Even though she couldn't hear, literally hear, she could hear truth in the Word of God is what she's saying. Even though she couldn't see light, she knew light by the Word of God. What a profound thing from a profound woman to say. What does the Bible say about itself? A lot of things, but my heart first goes to 2 Timothy 3.16. The Apostle Paul writing to a young pastor, Timothy, he says, All scriptures breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may competent, be competent, equipped for every good work. 
As a church, one of our distinctives, one of our values, is that we seek to be Bible-honoring, which means that we believe that, that the Word of God is inspired by God. It's not just written by the Apostle Paul or the prophet Isaiah, but the, the authors are inspired and used by the Holy Spirit to write the very Word of God, that it's God's revelation. It's, it's the Word of God in which we truly know God. God uses His Word to reveal truly who He is, and as a result, it's authoritative. It's not something we just can Insult at something that, that is over us. But whether we're somebody that has been following Jesus and considers ourselves a Christian, or, or we're just here exploring Christianity and maybe wanting to learn more about the claims of Jesus, one of the most important things that we need to consider when we ask ourselves, hey, what do I believe about the Bible or what that question's posed to us? One of the things that is relevant to that answer is, is exploring and, and being aware of the Bible's relationship and inclusion of prophecy. Now, prophecy is, is pre-proclaimed or pre-written history. And something like over 1,800 prophecies are, are in Scripture at the time it was written, something like 27% of the Bible. I'm going to go over all 1,800 of those this morning. Oh, I'm not, but one of my favorites, one, just one example, is, is found in Isaiah chapter 45, the book of Isaiah, prophetic book in the Old Testament. Chapter 45, verse 1, the prophet Isaiah writes of, prophesies of a ruler who is to come named Cyrus and that he's going to lead the Persian Empire. And that through his leadership that God's going to do some things for his people and, and change the very nature of the world. And what is amazing and just, just wonderful about that reality is that was written by the prophet Isaiah hundreds, uh, over a hundred years before Cyrus was ever born and before the, the, the Persian Empire actually had the power to even be considered to, to have the sway and influence to, to change the face of the power structure of the globe. And yet, long before this man's ever born, and long before his nation is ever really relevant to the extent it will become, Isaiah name drops him, specifically describes what he will accomplish and how God's going to use him and his kingdom. Like, who's going to be president in 100 years? What's going to be happening with our nation in 100 years? It's impossible to say. And yet here in the Word of God, just one example we have the Bible giving the name and details of a ruler long before they're ever born. Or his nation's considered being a, a leading world power. So when you're asking that question, hey, what do I believe about the Bible? Based on its inclusion of prophecy alone, there's far more than that, but just based on that alone, the claim that the Bible's the divine word of God, that's compelling. That's something we all have to be struck by. No other book in history does anything like that. So I bring that all up because as we're approaching Mark chapter 13 today, we're studying a portion of the gospel of Mark. As months now, we've been going through verse by verse the gospel of Mark, and we're going to just wrap that up in April of this year on Easter. And so that's coming, and I'm excited and both kind of sad about that because it's been so rich to go through this book with y'all. But we come now to this chapter, chapter 13, and it's, it's unique in all of Mark in, in a few re, for a few reasons. First, it is full of prophecy from Jesus. 
And second, it's, it's, it's unique because as, as we've uh, picked up on, if you've been with us over these last months, the Gospel of Mark is unique because it's a book of action. There's a lot happening. There's a lot of description as to what Jesus is doing. And in comparison to some of the other Gospels, there's not as much content of Jesus' teaching. And yet here in Mark chapter 13, we have a, a, the largest chunk in the Gospel of Mark, the largest section of Jesus' words and teaching by far. And what Jesus is going to speak to as he does in the parallel accounts in Matthew 24 and Luke 21, is considered to be some of the most difficult passages of the Bible to understand and teach. And part of that is because Mark 13, um, there's some disagreement or, or confusion among Christians about what this chapter is saying in regards to end times or, or last things, the, the fancy theological word for that is eschatology. It's a mashup of two Greek words, one of them meaning last and, and the other meaning word or reason or discourse, eschaton and, and logos, and you put those together, you get eschatology. And eschatology really is important as, as a church and as Christians to care about, to look into it. It's, it gives us beautiful insight into the truth of suffering and evil and their reality, and yet Jesus' power and his purposes and hope that we have. It's not just for like the egg-headed theologians among us, and it's not just for certain denominations or not others. It's, it matters. It's important. There's this joke that I actually find funny, right? Where you, you these different like descriptions of, of your end times view. And it's like, and this might not mean anything to, to some of us, but are you, you pre-mill or you, you post-mill, you all-mill? And the joke is, well, I'm pan-mill. It's all going to pan out in the end. That's a dad joke, and I love dad jokes, so it's funny to me. But it's actually unhelpful, right? Because it mattered to Jesus, it mattered to the authors of scriptures, it it should matter to us. And yet, as we begin to look at Mark 13 and take some time as a church to explore eschatology in the coming weeks, like there's some things that we all just need to say, hey, regardless of whether this is something that you, you haven't historically cared about or whether this is like a primary passion of yours that you're carrying in this morning, there's there's some common ground that if we're in Christ, we need to recognize. First, we all believe that Jesus Jesus is going to return and come back. That's a promise in Scripture. Amen. We believe that sin and and death and evil will be destroyed finally because of the work of Christ Jesus. That's true. We believe that all things will be made new, that one day Jesus will remake a new heavens and a new earth. That's good, good news and a hope that's a promise that we hold on to. We believe, and the older I get, the more this matters to me, that we're going to be resurrected in Christ to have new bodies. I wake up 40 years old, and I have injuries that I got in my sleep. I don't know how it happened. It's like, why are you limping? I wish I knew, right? But one day, I'm going to, to, to have a new body because of the work of Christ Jesus, and I'm never going to wake up limping. Praise Jesus. Amen, right? There's, there's, that seems trivial, but remember, some of us are in chronic pain. And yet, there's a day coming in a new heavens and a new earth where those of us in Christ are going to have bodies that will never wear out. And as Christians, this is common ground that we share, that we stand on. And as we look at Mark chapter 13 over these next three weeks, our aim is to really understand Scripture in light of Scripture, 
to look at the context of what Jesus is saying here and, and by God's grace, allow it to shape us and form us. But all that being said, I really expect that there's going to be questions that come up and we're going to want to explore this to a deeper degree together, particularly around uh, what the Bible says about end times. So as a result, the elders of the church reached out to our, our dear friend and friend of our church, Dr. Sam Storms, pastor at Bridgeway, and he's agreed to come on a Wednesday night at Frontline Downtown. And anybody who wants to come from any of the Frontline congregations can come. It's going to be March 23rd, and it's going to be an evening of eschatology. And so we'll, we'll spend a good amount of time uh, discussing with, with Pastor Storms, Dr. Storms, and even have some time to answer, ask and have him speak to some questions. He's been just invaluable to, to me and some of the other pastors as we've looked into this chapter. So we're indebted to him. So with all that being said, let's jump into to the first verse of Mark chapter 13. And the first thing I want us to see is Jesus' prophecy of the destruction of the temple. And he came out of the temple, and he came out of the temple, and one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? They will not be left here one stone upon the other that will not be thrown down. Over the last couple days in the life and ministry of Jesus, we've seen some significant things regarding his relationship and the temple. Remember that the first half of the book of Mark covers like nearly three years of the ministry of Jesus, yet as we make this turn in the second half of the book, it slows down, and we're looking at digging into in depth the last week before Jesus' death and resurrection. And we've seen in these days some important things that happened in the life of the temple and Jesus's life. On Monday, Jesus entered the temple and he pronounced judgment upon the temple. We looked at that about a month ago. He came in hot, flipped some temples, drove out some people that were swindling people in need, money changers. He called it a den of robbers. On Tuesday, he engages in conflict with the, the religious leadership of the temple, and they challenge his authority, and they try to trap and expose him. And in Jesus's divine wisdom, he flips the script on them and shares profound truth every time. And it really is coming to this peak where Jesus shares this warning with his disciples about temple leadership, and he exposes how dark they've become and how busted up and broken the temple system is. And it's more about appearances of righteousness than true righteousness. It's more about taking from people than serving people. And so when we come to this very first verse, and it says, and he came out of the temple, it's easy to just read past that and get to what seems like more interesting stuff, and yet that's significant. We need to slow down and see this isn't just a literal exit, although it is. It's actually a pronouncement in a way of Jesus departing the temple in judgment to never enter it again. And so while Jesus is making this exit, one of his disciples pipes up and says, teacher, look, what wonderful stones, what a wonderful building. And it, it's hard for us to wrap our, our heads around, but to, to live in this time and to experience the temple, you would, as you are 
exiting, everybody must have felt that regularly because it was considered to be one of the wonders of the ancient world. It was amazing, a breathtaking physical structure. It had, it had gone under this construction at this point by Herod the Great, and it had been lasting for over 50 years. It was like Broadway extension, just always being built, never being finished. And yet it was like glorious, unlike Broadway extension, right? We got some pictures of the temple just so you can get a glimpse of it, some, some renderings. It was this rendition of the temple. It was double the size of Solomon's temple, it, the original temple built. It had 35 acres enclosed. It was like 12 football fields enclosed. It took up a huge portion of the city itself. And archaeologists have dug up just single stones that are a part of this construction that just this one stone weighs over a million pounds. What it contained was, was riches, silver and gold and rare jewels, but even more, it represented for the Jewish people the reality of the place where heaven kissed earth, the very presence of God, the center of their national identity. And so it made all the sense in the world as, as someone left this place to just look up and wonder and say, Jesus, do you see this? But Jesus responds with this, this prophetic proclamation that is, is shocking to the, to the listeners. He said, yeah, you see this building. You see these great buildings. There will not be left here one stone upon the other that will not be thrown down. So Jesus is prophetically exiting the temple, and he's also proclaiming that it was, it's going to be destroyed. Because he's the one, he's the, the true temple, the very presence of the God where, where heaven has truly kissed earth. The very presence of God is there in Christ himself. It's God in the flesh, the son of God. And he's leaving the temple never to come back to it again. And he's even as he's making this prophecy and he's making his exit, he's fulfilling prophecy. Look at what Ezekiel chapter 11 verse 23 says from the Old Testament. The prophet Ezekiel, inspired by the Holy Spirit, writes... And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. See, Jesus is the glory of God who's departing this temple in this moment. And he's prophesying in 33 AD that that temple is going to be destroyed. And that would have been unimaginable to his disciples that are hearing. Like it seemed like an impossibility. The temple would last forever. It was indestructible. And yet 37 years later, just like Jesus said it would, that comes to fruition. History shares with us in detail that in 70 AD, the temple was destroyed. See, the Jewish people had suffered long under Roman rule, and all throughout Rome's rule over the Jewish people, there was regularly just revolts and uprisings and rebellions and attempts to overthrow the rule and the tyranny of Rome. And there came a point in, in 66 AD where that had came to just such a boiling point that Rome was like, look, we're tired of dealing with y'all, all these rebellions, all these uprisings. We're going to, to bring an end to this nation. We're not going to rule over them anymore. We're going to stomp them out. Out. And so the, the Roman army comes down upon the Jews, comes down upon Israel. They lay siege to Jerusalem in 66 AD. And within a year, the Roman military has conquered most of what we know as the Holy Land. But right when it seems like Israel's on the ropes and the end is imminent, civil war breaks out in Rome, a grab for power. 
Rome begins infighting, and so that army is recalled. And so you think, okay, phew, right? Jerusalem is, is going to be okay. But then what happens immediately after is, is Jerusalem breaks out into a civil war. And factions who are fighting for power begin to wage war against each other. And so when things settle in Rome and their civil war comes to an end, they come back to Jerusalem in 69 AD. And because of the infighting in the civil war of Jerusalem, they're weak, they're disorganized, they're demoralized. And the Roman general Titus, he puts the city under siege for five months. And in 70 AD, the Roman soldiers break through the walls of the city and they just bring total decimation. History tells us that Titus actually was trying to keep his soldiers from destroying the temple, but there are accounts that they were so enraged because of this prolonged siege of the city that they couldn't be controlled. And what seemed indestructible is ravaged and destroyed, and the temple's burnt. You can go to Rome today and see this Arch of Titus pictured, which was created just a a decade later to honor this general's conquering of Israel. And you can see in this arch the spoils of war carrying the treasure from the temple. So that's the history. And 37 years before these events, Jesus, what seemed unthinkable, prophesies it's going to happen. And so with that prophecy ringing in their ears... These disciples, they ask Jesus. We see in verse 3, they, they sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. So they're across the valley, and they have a perfect picture of the temple, a perfect view. And Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, these sets of brothers, they come to him privately, and they have these burning questions. Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? So notice they have like some very specific questions. First, like, when is this going to happen, Jesus? And, Jesus, what can we be on the lookout for that will be a sign as to when these things will occur? And I think it's going to be helpful to each and every one of us to keep the, the opening verses of this chapter in mind because we need to remember Jesus' original prophecy about the temple and then what Jesus says the rest of this chapter is speaking to these disciples' questions. Hey, when will these things be, and what will be the sign? To say it another way, the majority of Mark 13, if not all of it, is directly dealing with the destruction of the temple that's going to occur in 70 AD. So let's look at what Jesus continues to tell these disciples. The second thing, Jesus' prophecy of deceivers and disasters and disturbances. Verse 5, Jesus began to tell them, You see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. Jesus comes and he says, first, don't be led astray. And he gives the disciples a warning about false saviors, false spiritual leaders, false Messiah, these deceivers. And he says, hey, 
see that no one leads you astray. Many are going to come in my name saying, hey, I'm, I'm he. I'm with God. I'm with Jesus. I actually am, am sent by God to lead God's people, and yet they're not going to be true spiritual leaders. They're not true messiahs. Christ was the one true messiah. These are wannabes and wicked spiritual leaders that are, that are wielding the name of God for their own purposes. And we see actually the reality of this described in the book of Acts. The book of Acts, which is the historical account of the early church. And we see in many times in the book of Acts, men like this called out and what happens. Thetis in chapter 5 had hundreds of followers and he was a, a false messiah. Simon the magician in chapter 8 was, was, was moving people to follow him and he was a, a false spiritual leader. Bar-Jesus in chapter 13, you can read about him. There's a, there's a fascinating moment in Acts chapter 21 where just in passing, there's a word about a, a false messiah who is from Egypt. And I was reading in, in one, uh, one of my favorite historical books written by Josephus this week, this Jewish historian, and he goes into more detail about this guy, this Egyptian false spiritual leader. And he, he garnered as many as 30,000 followers in the wilderness and tried to take Jerusalem by force. And Rome came and, and crushed him and his followers scattered. And then as they integrated back in the city, denied ever being a part of his movement. So we see in history and, and recorded in Scripture that what Jesus prophesied happened again and again and again in a unique way in this period of history. Jesus goes on to say, hey, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, he first said, don't be led astray by these false spiritual leaders, these deceivers. And here he says, when you hear of conflict among nations and when you see it, don't be alarmed. This period between Jesus' death and resurrection and the temple being destroyed, this 37 years was, was marked by overwhelming conflict and military disturbances around Israel and all around the Roman Empire. Dr. Sam Storm, he writes this, summarizing the historical record of conflict over this period of time as it related to the Jewish people. There was an uprising in Caesarea that took place where 20,000 Jews lost their lives. In Scythopolis, 13,000 Jews were killed. In Alexandria, 50,000 were slain. 10,000 were killed in Damascus. There's a moment where the emperor Caligula, who's an incredibly wicked and dark leader, he tried to put a, a, a statue of himself in the temple in Jerusalem. That happened in 40 AD. And the Jews refused and as a result, they lived in such certainty that there was going to be an attack from the emperor, from Rome, on their nation. They thought it was so imminent that they lived in such distress and anxiety that farmers stopped planting and harvesting. They neglected to even till the land because they just thought any day war was going to break out. But Jesus says in light of all these things in verse 7, let's not miss it, that these events don't mean, right, what's the question that the disciples are asking? When is this going to take place and what do we need to be on the lookout for? And Jesus is saying, hey, this isn't a sign. This isn't a sign that the temple is going to be destroyed, let alone the end of the world is coming. He's explicitly saying, hey, don't be alarmed. This is going to take place. It must take place, but it's not the end. 
Jesus just doesn't prophesy about the nations in conflict, and we see historically that that was true. He also prophesies that the, 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 the world, the natural world itself, will experience upheaval. Verse 8, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. But these are the beginning of birth pain. It's fascinating, and if you want to, you can go do the historical work yourself. Look into the historical records, not just in the Bible because it's there in Acts, but in other historical records. But this period of time between 33 A.D. and 70 A.D. is full of natural disasters, earthquakes, famines. You can see it again in Acts. There's a, a, a famine that happens that's, that's really important to the early life of the church because you have Antioch mounting this huge relief effort to ease the burdens of Christians in Judea. The Roman historian uh, uh, Tannicus, he mentions the prevalence of famines during this period of time, and there was a horrible famine that happened around 50 AD in Rome. People were starving. And there were earthquakes all around the Roman Empire during this time. In Crete, Smyrna, Colossae, Laodicea, Rome, many cities experienced devastation. There were several series of cities that in 60 AD were devastated by an earthquake. And But what's Jesus' message? Let's keep it before us. Jesus says, these are but the beginning of birth pains. I've seen Anna go into labor four times, right? And what are you doing when you know the babies do? That there are birth pains that can happen way ahead of when the deliveries actually happen. A birth pain doesn't necessarily mean the birth is imminent. And when Jesus is specifically saying here that that, that it's the beginnings of birth pains, he's saying you're going to see these things, but stay calm. They're going to maybe come with increased frequency and duration and intensity, but stay calm. It doesn't mean anything is imminent. Yet, ironically, Jesus is literally teaching his disciples here not to be alarmed when you see these things. And yet, even here 2,000 years later, when Christians see these things, what do many of us tend to do? Like, oh, I'm alarmed. What does this mean? What's around the corner when we see nation rise against nation or natural disaster? Surely something's about to come to an end. It seems like Jesus' message is the exact opposite. Hey, when you see these things, don't be anxious. Let's look at the the final thing Jesus says in our text, this prophecy in our text. Jesus 3 has a prophecy of the disciples' persecution. He's talking about worldwide things, but then he gets fiercely personal with these four men. And he says, hey, you be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to the councils. You're going to be beaten in synagogues. You'll stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, don't be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speaks, but the Holy Spirit. Jesus goes on to describe the persecution of the early church. In verse 12, he says, And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my namesake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So Jesus is saying here, be on guard to you and to the early church disciples. There is 
suffering coming. There is persecution on its way. And we see again in history and recorded in the book of Acts that this is, is reality. In the coming decades after the resurrection of Jesus, that these men specifically will be delivered over to councils. They're going to be beaten. They're going to stand before governors and kings and emperors. And they're going to do all of that because of their faith and, and their strong stand in the truth of the gospel. And they're going to all say, hey, look, this is what I know. The man was dead and now he's alive. And you can do whatever you want to me, but I know what is true. He was not just a poor carpenter. He wasn't just a false messiah like all these others. He was the real deal. He was the son of God. And my allegiance is to him over you. And they so believed that that each and every, nearly each and every one of the disciples was willing, all of them willing to suffer and, and the majority willing to die because they weren't willing to say, no, it was a lie. They gave their lives to say, no, Jesus is the Son of God. And as they suffer, Jesus' promises is that the church will be built and the gospel will go out everywhere. Verse 10, and the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. One of the things that's kind of confusing about reading this verse in English is like, I read that, and upon the first reading, I think that means the gospel is going to go out to, to every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every continent, which is true, that's in Scripture. But what Jesus is specifically saying here, I believe, is, is more uh, targeted than that because he's talking again about this period of time between his resurrection, his death and resurrection, and the destruction of the temple. This is the way he puts it. It's recorded in in Matthew 24, the same account. Matthew writes of Jesus' words, and he says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. See, this, this word whole world, or this word that some places is translated all nations. It's a Greek word, oikomene, which literally means like inhabited area. And so we see it in other verses, right? And we recognize in those verses that it doesn't mean like the entirety of of the planet Earth. It means a specific area. Case in point, let me read to you a Christmas verse, Luke chapter 2, verse 1. It says, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world that's that same Greek word, should be registered. Now, we read that and we recognize, hey, that means the Roman Empire. You know, there's the Mayan Empire that's rocking and rolling like in Honduras and, and Belize at the time. And like the emperor wasn't saying that there needs to be a census there. Those people were, were there. God loves those people. God wanted to reach those people. And yet what he's saying specifically here, Dr. Luke, the historian, is that that decree went out from Caesar to the Roman world. And that's what Jesus is saying, and that's what we see the Apostle Paul say again and again. For example, Romans 1, verse 8, Paul says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. He's saying that to the early church in Rome, and he's not saying literally like, hey, people in Australia have heard the gospel yet. He's saying, hey, all across the empire. The point is this, that, that Jesus' ministry focused in Judea, it has exploded, and now it's empire-wide proclamation of who Jesus is and what he's done, and that to the ends of the known world in this empire, Rome, that the gospel is going to be proclaimed before this temple is destroyed. Verse 11 
And Jesus goes on to say, hey, when you're facing this persecution as you proclaim the gospel, they're going to bring you to trial, deliver you over. Don't be anxious. Don't be fearful. God the Spirit is going to speak through you. And you and my church, there's going to be tragedy and pain you're going to face. There's going to be family betrayal and division. Brother will deliver brother over to death. Father, his child, and children, their parents. You'll be hated by all for my namesake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. If we go all the way back to where we started studying the Gospel of Mark, we can remember that the, the first church to, to, to explore this gospel on a Sunday morning, the first church to dig into it and read it was that early church in Rome, and they received it written by John Mark, inspired by the Holy Spirit. They were going through hell on earth, it seemed. Emperor Nero, one of the most wicked rulers in history, had blamed them for his own evil and and all the power of, of Rome was coming down to ravage them and there was fear and you had due to the fierce persecution of, of being thrown into the Colosseum to be fed to animals and, and, and being tortured in the most horrendous ways. You saw the tragedy of family selling out family, one Christian brother being arrested and then to... to to escape persecution and pain, selling out and betraying his family, saying, hey, this is where they're gathering. This is where you can find them. And imagine the, the pain and the fear. You get up on a Sunday morning and you're having to walk in the dark and, and you're looking to make sure you're not followed and you gather down in the catacombs, the tombs. You're literally underground. You're not singing boldly. You're whispering hymns because... You're trying to avoid persecution, and then Sunday comes, and an elder reads out of Mark chapter 13, and you're reminded that Jesus isn't surprised that he didn't see this coming, but he knew the pain you were going to go through and the promises that you're not alone. He sees you, he's at work, he's with you, and he's charging you to endure, that you're going to be spirit-empowered witnesses to the world, and he's building his kingdom. He's at work in history. It must have meant so much to them. What, is it, what does it mean to us? I think one of the things that struck my heart as I was digging into this chapter these last few weeks is that Jesus loves us enough to be honest with us. He doesn't bait and switch us into following him. He isn't promising like an easy, comfortable life. And then when we actually follow him, we realize that suffering and hardship is a reality. Jesus is clear all through scripture and all the Bible is clear that Real Christianity comes with pain and rejection and misunderstanding. You know, Josh Curry, who planted Frontline Downtown for as long, he was my youth pastor like 20 years ago. And I remember even back then in the late 90s, him using the same illustration of of how some pastors are like bad army recruiters who like call you into the office and they're like, do you like CrossFit? You like to work out? You'll love being a Marine. It's just like that. You like to travel? You like the beach? You'll see a lot of water. Join the Navy. It's awesome. It's like a holiday, right? And he's saying like, Jesus isn't like that. The faith isn't like that. What's ironic this week is that my nephew Josh's son actually signed up for the armed forces. 
And I heard Josh this week say it was like really encouraging to sit down with him with army recruiters because he signed up for some serious stuff to say, hey, this is going to be really hard, harder than you could ever imagine. Jesus is like that. He's honest. He's, he's not going to bait and switch us. He's clear in his message to say, hey, look, following me is difficult. It's going to mean bearing a cross, but it's, it's so rich. It's abundant life. It's life as it was meant to be lived. And, and I have purpose. I'm working in history. And when you are in me, you're made with purpose. You get to fulfill your purpose. You get to know me, and I know you. Jesus goes on to, to say that, his love means God's present. I mean, that's the, the ringing message here at the end of Jesus' prophecies. Hey, even though you're going to face this hardship, know that you're not alone, that the Spirit of God is with you. There may be painful realities that we face. There were painful realities that the early church faced, but the, the, the rock-solid promise is that although we face hardship, that we are not alone, that God is with us. What Jesus also says here in Mark 13 is that Jesus' love demands our allegiance. That you can't live ultimately to follow Jesus and also live ultimately for the approval of others. Those indefinitely without fail will come to a head and you'll have to choose allegiance and obedience to Jesus above pleasing somebody else. And sometimes that can play out in painful ways. Sometimes it's somebody that we deeply love that can hold out even our very relationship and say, hey, if you believe that, that we can't be close. And even today in Edmond, Oklahoma, 2022, we can love someone dearly and, and hope for the best for them and serve them and care for them and be a picture of Christ and do everything right and still experience the pain of lost relationship because they say, hey, what you believe, I don't want any part of. Living for an audience of one, it, it, it truly frees us from living for the cares of others to be freed to truly care for others. That come what may, we can love and serve in allegiance to our king. And finally, Jesus' love empowers our endurance. Anna yesterday went to a funeral of a family member, and uh, at the same time, I went to a, to a birthday of uh, a friend. And then, that, that same day, there was a sweet young couple that was getting married in our church. And I was just reflecting on that day. It's like you have grieving, you have celebration, you have a wedding feast, literally, like, isn't that what life is like sometimes? And yet, I was reminded, reflecting on that day, also knowing that together we're going to, and some of you in this room, we're going to a funeral on Saturday of a sweet woman that passed away that we love a lot. And Ecclesiastes 7 says it's better to go to the house of mourning than feasting. And from what I understand, the, the truth of that is that uh, celebrations are good. Thank God for birthday parties. Thank God for weddings. And yet there's something significant about going to the house of mourning that's good for our hearts, specifically, we need to think about death more than we do. Like, how weird is our culture regarding death? Like, even when we go to the house of mourning, we, we put paint and makeup on the dead body to make them look alive? Because we're just, like, like, allergic to death as a culture? 
And what the author of Scripture is saying is saying not in a morbid way should you be obsessed with it, not all the time, but more often certainly than we do, it is good and right to go to the house of mourning. There's something special about how God meets us in our mourning, and there's, there's something significant and wise about remembering that unless Christ comes back, we're all going to die. And on this earth, we're given this gift of life, and, and God calls us to live it in a way where we glorify him, his purpose. And I mean, the, the tragedy of our age is that so many people have divorced time from meaning. And they look at all this wonder, and they think it's purposeless. And that doesn't ring true in anybody's soul if they slow down long enough to listen. That all this wonder isn't without meaning. This is not a cosmic accident. There is a good God who made a good creation, and he is working in history. The, the God before time set time into motion, and then he entered into his own creation so that we would know that he is God of history. The temple being destroyed isn't just the, the, the happenstance. It is God at work. God ruling over history. He knows what's coming. He's sovereign, and he knows you. He made you. He loves you. And, and Jesus prophesying these things is significant because Jesus also prophesied that, hey, I'm going to be killed. But hey, I'm not going to stay dead. I'm going to rise again. And that is for the purpose to save your soul from death and Satan and sin. He makes promises. He keeps promises. And as we follow Jesus, he's saying, hey, look, there's going to be hardship. There's going to be struggle. But the continual message from Christ and the continual message again and again of Scripture is to endure, press on, keep going. And it's this beautiful paradox because that's our charge. That's our responsibility. Yet the promise also is, hey, God is with you, and I'm going to enable you and empower you to endure and keep on and press on keep going. Let's stand and pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you love us enough to be honest. You love us enough to, to be present. You love us enough to, to not leave us to our own wanderings, but you call us to absolute allegiance and life in you. And you call us to and you empower us to endure amidst the struggles of this life. And so we remember and remind our own hearts by the power of the Spirit that, that one day, because you are God who's made promises and always kept promises, and one day you promise that you will come again, make all things new, and so for those of us who are in you, Christ Jesus, help us remember that day and live for that day. And for those of my friends that did the brave thing of coming here this morning and they're not sure what they believe about you, as they, I pray here the wonder and the truth of who you are and what you've done. I pray that they would move towards you in faith recognize you as king. Admit they need you. They're broken without you. They're lost. But you, Jesus, you've made them with purpose. You pursue them in love. 
and that life, true life, is found in you. So, Spirit of God, help them run to you this morning. Being honest about all the ways that they've run from you, but seeing you in truth that they can run to you freely. They don't need to earn anything or do anything. You've done the work for them on the cross. It's your righteousness and your life that's freely given as a gift. May we receive it this morning. Jesus, we pray all this in your name. God's people said.